We invite you to take your Bibles, please, tonight and go to 1 John chapter 4, please. 1 John chapter 4. Some of you uh, may have heard in the last uh, week or two about uh, what is happening on some college campuses around the country uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, beginning with uh, Asbury University in Kentucky. Uh, On February 3rd, after chapel, a group of about 20 students decided to stay after in order to pray and sing. And then eventually the meeting swelled to overflow capacity and has gone on uh, uh, continuously, at least up until last I checked on it, uh, with thousands of people uh, coming to the campus from all around to see what's going on. And uh, some some similar kinds of things uh, opening up on other college campuses, and, and folks uh, speaking of it in revival terms. I think part of the reason it captured quickly attention, because in 1970, uh, there was a similar kind of thing on the campus of Asbury College called the Asbury Revival that eventually spread to, uh, I think, about 130 other campuses. Uh, and, and obviously there's similarities uh, cultural and societal similarities between the tensions in America in 1970 and present. And so I think that's sort of the, uh, the reason it, it's captured um, uh, a lot of attention. It's made news, uh, national news, newspapers, those types of things uh, that, have, that have been going on. And like, like everything these days, um, our, our culture, particularly because of our addiction to social media, uh, becomes immediately flooded with full-throated uh, full endorsements of it or criticisms of it. Right? All, all it takes is a couple of minutes to find people saying, this is a ri- revival, this is not a revival. Right? And, and people... Uh, people deciding that they need to pass judgment on it, and and that's not that's not my desire tonight at all. Because for two, at least two reasons. One is I don't know, right? I've not actually been there. I've not seen. I don't. I've read some articles. Um, I think it would be foolish to pass a judgment from distance, right? But also. The real test, if it's a genuine work of God, is not so much actually wrapped up in the experience that's happening, but the fruit that comes out of it. Right? If, if it's a genuine work of God, it will produce lasting results. There will actually be uh, transformed lives, uh, sinners converted, advance in, in obedience to God and His Word. Right? And, and you're not going to you're not going to know that for a while. So, so the reality of it is, I think it's just it's just premature uh, to pass a kind of firm judgment on it in that regard. I think um, this is sort of like a, just a paraphrase of it, but I thought it was a good a good quote. Right in the midst of some kind of a spiritual experience like this, the test isn't actually how high you jump, but how straight you walk once you land. Right, and sometimes what we do is like to gauge how much energy is generated, rather than how much transformation takes place. 
And, and that's the danger with, with running to what I'd consider to be uh, premature judgments. And, and this is not an unusual thing in this regard. Um, I think it probably could be, it could be verified. I could probably pull out quotes for you. I know I certainly can for the first great awakening. Uh, that whenever God actually does do something dramatic, there are these kinds of reactions to it. One side embraces everything that's happening as if it's the work of God, and another side starts to stand opposed to everything that's happening because there are some things in it that are hard to justify. Right? That's, that's just the way it works because... Uh, the the reality of it, we know this from the scriptures, but I think Jonathan Edwards did a great service to God's people by by uh, thinking about this issue, because he was an instrument greatly used by God in the first great awakening, and in the midst of it all, he could see that there were a lot of very good things that were happening, but mingled with it were false things. Right? Just think of the church at Corinth. Right? It's an enormous evidence of God's grace, the first chapter says. Right? That God has done this at a place absolutely dominated by filthy, perverse, pagan idolatry. And God established the church of God at Corinth. You and I would probably write off the church of God in Corinth because of what we see in the book of Corinthians. Right? Because there's, there's a lot of mess at Corinth. Yet Paul begins the book by saying, I give thanks to God for his work of grace among you. Right? The, the reality of it is, is that you and I need to understand, and I think this is plagued, it's plagued uh, Christians, but I think particularly Christians of our heritage. I'll put it in the evangelical and fundamentalist heritage. Is that we, we have actually embraced some false thinking that tends to think all or nothing. Right? If, if God's doing something, then everything associated with must be good. Or if there's something bad, then there must be nothing good wrapped up in it. I mean, one of the worst ways that showed up in the history of our kinds of circles is pastors of big churches who are absolute charlatans. But nobody's willing to criticize them because look what God's doing. Right? Because if, if God's blessing it, they must be good. And then it comes out that they're horrible. Right? Because God wasn't blessing that person if blessing was happening. He was blessing his word. And we know from numbers that even a donkey can speak God's word. Right? So it may have been God was blessing it in spite of that person, not because of that person. So apparent blessing is not a justification of everything that happens. 
right? That's just not the way it works. And, and we know that from the scriptures because we see how often God uses people who, who are at best a mixed bag. Right? You can name them all. Because if we actually say God, I mean, we, we say this sometimes, God will not use a dirty vessel. And here's what I'd suggest to you. Outside of Jesus, that's the only kind he's ever used. Because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. That does not justify the toleration of dirt. Because we're told to cleanse ourselves. We're, tend to pursue, we're told to pursue righteousness. We're supposed to, to pursue a pathway that, that is aimed at being a vessel useful for the master. There's no toleration of sin in that. It's just the recognition of the fact that, that we at times have thought that we can draw conclusions on wrong bases. Do you know what the test, Edward said, of what God was doing was not the effects, either positive or negative entirely, but was obedience and faithfulness to the word. And that, that always has to be the test, right? Because the devil is a deceiver. He loves to come alongside of a good work of God and sow seeds of deception in it. 2 Corinthians 11 his messengers appear as angels of light, right? And, and they're intended to deceive people away from Christ. So, so we have to realize that, that it's not as simple as good things are happening, therefore everything is good. Or there's something bad connected to this, so this must all be the work of the devil. Right? That's the way we tend to operate. Someone got saved. This must all be from the Lord. There's a woman preacher associated with it. It must all be from the devil. Right? That's the kind of stuff that I hear. And I think, how would people like that have made it in the New Testament era? Right? How would they have navigated the world that we see in the New Testament? Right? Because it's not good, sound judgment and discernment. It's either, either on one hand, a kind of naive enthusiasm, or on the other, a kind of critical pessimism. And I think God would, would actually want us to have sort of a cautious optimism informed by the scriptures. I mean, I hope it is a work of God. I genuinely do. And I hope it spreads to every campus in the country and every church in the country. I mean, I would genuinely love to see a revival like the Great Awakening or like the prayer meeting revival in the middle of the 1800s. I would love to see that. But I have to actually be cautiously optimistic, letting the scriptures control things. So what I'd like to do is just remind us of how the scriptures would, would address something like this. And, and, and make certain that we don't uh, either blindly, naively embrace anything and everything that seems like a move of God, nor have a kind of 
a harsh, critical spirit that shuts down everything so that we lock God in a box that's more narrow than his word. I'm comfortable with the box of scripture because God built that box. I'm not comfortable being tighter than God, right? And that's what we have to guard ourselves against. So look at 1 John chapter 4, please. I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll work our way through the text. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 1 establishes the principle that governs the rest of the verses. And the principle basically lays out a responsibility for believers uh, to engage in a test. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So, so uh, R.C. Sproul in a book on revival says, so what this text is calling us to is unbelief in a very narrow way, right? Don't believe every spirit. You, you are not supposed to have a heart of credulity that it accepts any claim that comes along. You actually have an obligation to put claims to the test. So we as God's people are not to believe everyone merely by virtue of their prophetic claim. And so what we need to do is have a, a, a kind of deliberate caution as we hear claims of people speaking for God. That's what I would take this as a false prophet, as someone who's claiming to speak for God. And we're supposed to test the spirits to see if that's actually from God or not. Uh, Examine to see if they're correct and true. The word uh, test here is the same one used in Ephesians 5.10 where it says, We're trying to learn, or putting to the test, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So there there must be some sense of evaluation. And and part of the reason uh, this, this, uh, you know, this sort of this subject tonight uh, matters to me is because it hits on two things that are really important to me, discernment and revival, and where they connect. Right? Because we should hunger for a, a, a deep and lasting work of God that sometimes we call revival, but we also must cultivate a spirit of discernment because the scriptures call us to that. Right, We're supposed to have the kind of excellent judgment that makes righteous, wise choices, Philippians chapter 1. We're supposed to actually not quench the work of the Spirit, but we're supposed to be putting everything to the test 
holding fast that which is good and abstaining from any form of evil, right? And I, I've said that here uh, a lot, many times, right? Whatever is proclaimed from this pulpit is not to be received naively, but tested by the word of God. And if it matches up with the text of scripture, it's to be received and embraced. If not, it should be dropped on the floor, right? Abstain from any kind of wrong teaching. That's the obligation of God's people. And that's because the devil operates as a deceiver. He, he was, and I believe still is, uh, sowing among God's people those who are, Acts 20 would call, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, and that there are people who rise up from among God's people speaking perverse things so they might lead disciples away. So there's never a point where God's people can naively just accept everything that someone claims to say on behalf of God, because not everybody who claims to speak for God is actually speaking for God. That's what the text is saying, right? I mean, that's the point, that there are false prophets who've gone out into the world. And, and we, uh, we should not expect that that would stop at the end of the apostolic era. Because the scriptures were given to us to prepare us for the time when the apostles were gone. And I've said this before, but uh, by my reckoning, every New Testament letter other than the one written to Philemon contains some warning about false teaching or false teachers. That's how important it was. Because the, the leaders of God's people entrusted with the first generation of work from God knew that the devil was going to constantly be chipping at the heels of the church. So they warned us again and again and again and again and again. Okay, and, and called on us to exercise discernment because the devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. So we're supposed to resist him steadfast in our faith. All right, so when you look at a verse like verse 1, I think it at least leads us to some implications that are important, right? Not all who claim to speak for God actually do. And even Jesus started warning about that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who, who come to you in sheep's clothing, right? So Jesus, and, and I'm just, I can't help but point this out, right? One of the most popular verses in our day is Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. And 14 verses later, Jesus says, beware of false prophets, and then says, you will know them by their fruit. In other words, you be a fruit inspector. So clearly Jesus telling them to inspect fruit was not a violation of 7, 1. So judging teachers to see if they're actually staying true to the will of God is not judgmentalism. It's a responsibility of God's people that we are supposed to see whether or not the fruit they bear looks like obedience to Jesus, because that's the fruit he's concerned about. It's not ministerial fruit. That, that passage says, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many miracles? 
right? So they had an apparently successful ministry. And here's what Jesus says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It wasn't the fruit of ministerial success. It was the fruit of obedience to Jesus Christ. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven will be welcomed into the kingdom. But Jesus turned to these folks and said, depart from me, you lawless one, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Right? So, so we can't confuse ministerial success with actually a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. Right? You can fill up stadiums with charlatans. That doesn't mean it's actually an approved worker of God. So we have to be careful. We have to think about that. Not who, not who claim to speak for God actually do so. Satanic strategy is often in the form of counterfeit, not competition or contrast, right? I quoted the text from 2 Corinthians 11, where he comes in as an angel of light, right? So, so it's a counterfeit, not a competitor, so to speak. It's not, hey, here's the church of the truth. We're going to set up the church of falsehood. Right? We're going to set up the church of half-truth, quarter-truth. Right? If, if he can slide in a low percentage of error that has significant detonating power, he wins. Right? So I'm just, I'll name a name. Are you familiar with the name T.D. Jakes? Like, very popular. He's a modalist. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. Right? So he's, he's lauded as a great Christian preacher, and people will push his books and have him you know, do stuff. He denies the Trinitarian nature of God. So how much error until somebody's a heretic? Well, like it might be just one plank, but if it happens to be the central plank, that's a problem. Right? How much arsenic do you want on your steak? I mean, that's the reality of it. And so, so Satan operates by counterfeit. And, and that means there must be objective, not just subjective evaluation of those who claim to speak for God. By subjective, I mean conclusions that are based on impressions and experiences and feelings, right? Because you can create experiences and impressions and feelings. Right, but those, those cannot be the sole test. There actually must be some objective standard that comes from the Word of God, and that's what John does here. Right? He says, listen, there's some truth test here that has to be considered. We have to push it in that direction so that we don't fall prey to, well, the experience was, was beneficial and, I, and I'm not trying to raise uh, questions, perhaps, that you don't have, but I'm going to try to say this carefully. Right, I've, sat, I've, sat, I've sat in services where the Word of God was handled in a brutally bad way and watched tons of people go forward in the invitation 
right? Objectively, I remember the I remember having this happen as plain as day. Dr. McCune and I were at a conference for fundamental Baptist preachers, and a guy preached on Gideon. Literally, a part of his sermon was Gideon was down in the wine press, right? Uh, doing doing the wheat in the wine press so he would be a, away from the enemies. And they jumped to this. Wheat is what you get bread from. Gideon was making bread. Bread's a symbol for the word of God. Gideon was ready to lead God's people because he was daily feeding on the word of God. That's nonsense. I mean, that's allegory, right? And it was, it was line after line after line on that. And then he's like, do you want revival? Come forward. And like everyone's pouring forward, except for I'm standing there. And then I was encouraged because I look up and three rows in front of me, Dr. Rice is just standing there, or Dr. McHugh is just standing there. Right? Basically, it was like, how can I respond to the abuse of God's word? Because they threw some piety around it. Now, did, did, did the people who went forward not experience something good? Maybe they did. Maybe, maybe like... Uh, like happens regularly, right? The person skimmed across the Bible, said a couple good things, and God, because he's enormously gracious to people, actually convicted somebody about their lack of Bible reading, and they repented about it. Here's what I'd say. Praise God. I'll never teach someone to preach the Bible like that. And I won't respond to that kind of manipulation of the Bible. Because the experience doesn't justify the disregard for the authority of God's word. But that kind of stuff happens, right? It happens. So, so just because I happen to be in a room where there's some kind of emotional intensity and people are affected by it doesn't mean that it is necessarily all good, right? That's my point. The experience isn't the key. The truth of God is the key. And that's where we have to turn because that's where the scriptures would take us to. So, so here's the, 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 the focus in two through six is really on sort of two core truths that become the practical way in which we would do this test. The first in verses two and three is the content of the messenger or content of the message. And if I can simplify it, it'd be this. In verse 2, God's messengers embrace the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. It says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Right. So here's the test. You've got to test the spirits. Here's how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So God's messengers embrace the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. Confession here is more than just a verbal acknowledgement, recognizing the raw facts. The demons were able to make that kind of confession about who Jesus of Nazareth was, right? I mean, demons shouted out, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. James says the demons know this and tremble, right? So it's not just like a verbal assent. It's actually the reflection of a heart that's embraced this truth. 
and, and held to it. And the content in this particular text is dealing with basic truths related to Jesus of Nazareth, being the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God who came and, 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 and he came in the flesh. So if we sort of, if we stacked it out, uh, in sort of a test kind of a way, it'd be that, that you confess that Jesus is an historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is in fact the Son of God, a divine person, the Christ, that he was preexistent, that he came. Right? So, so the one who came existed before he got here. Right? So it's a statement about the preexistence of Christ and about his full humanity, that he came in the flesh. Now, I'm not going to take the time to unpack it, but I could go point by point there and show where heterodoxy has denied those kinds of things. Right? That Jesus wasn't fully human or that he wasn't fully divine. That he didn't actually come in the flesh, he just appeared that way. Or that he wasn't always the Son of God, but he was adopted by God at his baptism. There's all kinds of historical errors that these texts would put an act right to the root of them and, and say, this is not from God. Right? And, and what I want to be clear is, that in this passage, this is particularly the problem that John is addressing. But we would say, if we thought of the book of Galatians, that Paul would say something like, I can tell you the spirit that comes from God. It confesses that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because if I or an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. Right? So there would be a test. If somebody in a, in a subjective press forward of spiritual emotion advocates something other than the true gospel, that's a problem, right? If it's not orthodox, it's a problem. And that's what he would be saying because Satan would come along among believers, verse three, and refuse this kind of confession in the spirit of Antichrist. And I don't want to, I don't want to pit these against each other, but, but perhaps we need to expand our idea of antichrist. We tend to think of anti always against, but it actually has a legitimate sense of in place of. Right? So the Christ here does, it's not, we shouldn't think, well, here's Jesus and this is the one against Jesus. It is true, but it may be against Jesus by seeking to replace Jesus like 2 Corinthians 11. They preach a Jesus, but not the Jesus that we preached. Right, And and that text should cause us to be reminded that we have to make sure that what someone is saying about Jesus is actually confessing what the Bible says about Jesus. Right, Because you can get up and sing songs about Jesus or even speak about Jesus, But if you're actually saying things that are contrary to what the scriptures say, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's, That's why we'd have to be thoughtful and careful about it. We want to see Christ exalted through the proclamation of his truth. All right, so the content. So if some... 
some movement takes off, one of the things that we should be wanting to immediately try to look at and see, is this consistent with the truth of God about Jesus Christ? Is this true to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right, Because that's what the Spirit of God would be doing. Right, He wouldn't actually be promoting a message that is anti-Christ. Verse 3 says that actually comes from another source. And that's a possibility. So we have to be, we have to be careful in that regard. Now notice verses four through six, because he, he does three, he makes three statements here. Notice in each verse, it starts with a personal pronoun. Verse four, you are from God. Verse five, they are from the world. Six, we are from God. And so what he's doing here is addressing, I think, three separate groups and declaring something about the source or origin of each group. He's writing, first of all, to the believers who are the recipients of this letter, and he's making a reaffirmation about them, his confidence in them as God's true children. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. I don't have time to unpack it all, but one of the keys to understanding why he would do this is because it seems from the the scriptures that the false teaching that broke out in their midst has led people to abandon their congregation. And that's led to questions, right? They're abandoning and claiming to be the true followers. So who is? And in chapter 2, John says, they went out from us because they were not of us, for had they been of us, they would have remained. Right? Their apostasy is evidence that they actually have turned away from the faith. You have held on to the faith, and that's the work of God. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 27 says, you have an anointing so that you know the truth that you have been able to recognize the error, and so you, in fact, are from God. God has done this work, and you have overcome them. That is, those who are advocating the spirit of Antichrist. I don't want to say this has no application to um, like moral issues, but I think in the context, it's a theological doctrinal one. You have overcome the error, because of the presence of the Spirit of God in you, like chapter 2, verses 20 and 27 say. Right? You remained faithful to the faith because the Spirit of God sustained your faith. He who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Christ. All right? so, so he's talking about them overcoming the false teaching because the Spirit of truth is at work in them, and he defeats the world, which is full of the spirit of error. All right, and, and that's, uh, we have to be careful with a verse like verse 4 when we, when we do the us-them. There's clearly a scriptural basis for us-them when it comes to the separation between truth and error, all right? But, but at the same point, we have to have uh, guard our hearts against a kind of uh, a toxic remnant kind of a thing, right? 
Uh, I don't think we have this, but that's the best time to, to address stuff like this, right? But there are churches that start to think every other church is apostate. I mean, I've heard guys say, you know, when, when a church is really growing, they start to think, well, they must be compromising because, you know, the world's so wicked, we're supposed to just sort of tie the knot and hang on, right? So please don't hear me saying, let's be cautious and optimistic as saying, so let's call into question everything. I said we shouldn't be critically pessimistic. We should actually believe that the work of Christ is going to accomplish its purpose. Like Kent prayed, I mean, that God's purpose cannot be thwarted. Jesus is going to build his church. He's not going to lose, folks. He's not. He's going to get the reward of his suffering. He said, other sheep have I which are not of this fold, them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. He didn't say, and I hope they hear my voice. Well, maybe they'll come. Right? Jesus was confident that the prosperity of his mission will be completed. We can be confident that the word of God does not return void. It accomplishes its purpose. Now, we don't know exactly what God's purpose is. It is possible, right? It is possible that we could be given a ministry like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Right? It is possible that God's judgment is lining up against the United States of America because of our rejection of him and his word, and he intends to judge us. That is possible, folks. I mean, Europe used to be the hotbed center of Christianity. Right? If, if we think we're above experiencing as a nation the judgment of God for turning our back on him, we don't understand the righteousness of God. Right? But I don't know what God's mind is. The third great awakening might be right around the corner. Right? I don't know. All I know is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to proclaim his word, trust him, and work to advance the mission of Jesus Christ and pray for his blessing on it. At no point are we supposed to close up shop and go, man, it's just going to be a mess till Jesus gets here. Well, yeah, it is. Paul said that 2,000 years ago. It's going to get worse and worse. I mean, I can have a realistic evaluation of the fact that Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. But I've overcome the world. All right, so, so, so we should keep pressing on. Jesus is on the winning side. And, and we will share in his victory. We need to realize that and not lose hope when, in fact, it seems at times the devil is winning a bunch of fights. Right? There, there is that reality. I mean, I was teaching this week and Phil asked about, you know, because we we're looking at something about Ephesus and you know, is this just the natural part of decline that these churches in Asia Minor that were so prosperous, they're not, you know, now they're, you know, they're mission fields with less than 1%. And I said, well, 
I said, yes, it may have been the spiritual decline, right? You heard messages last summer about the churches in Asia Minor. And Jesus warned to pull out the candlestick of the church at Ephesus. But also in God's providence, the Muslim conquest came through and wiped all the Christians out. Right? Turkey is what it is because of the sword. North Africa is what it is because of the sword. Right? So in God's providence, we have to realize that there's a lot of levels on which things are working, and, and he's completely sufficient for that, and I am not. Right? I have a hard time playing chess on one level, let alone four-dimensional. So my job's just to stick to what God said and have confidence the one who's in us is greater than him who's in the world, so he's going to do his job. And so John does not want them to be spooked by the fact that there are false prophets in the spirit of Antichrist. He wants them to recognize that the truth will win. Then he says something about them in verse 5, a rebuke. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them, right? There's three, essentially three planks to his argument. False teachers, false prophets are from the world. That is, it is their source or origin. Therefore, they speak from that source, from the world. Their message is given and governed by the world, and ultimately, it is the world which listens to them because there's an internal compatibility, Right, the, the ruler of this world has them blinded. So when his message is spoken to them, they respond to it because that's in their nature. I mean, Jesus said that to the Pharisees, right? I mean, you're of your father, the devil is a liar, and that's why you believe the lies. I mean, that, that's, um, we, we almost don't have a category for the bluntness of Jesus Christ. Right? But Jesus just called it straight. You're not accepting my message because you're not of God. You're accepting this false message because you're of your father, the devil. It wasn't a problem with the message. Right? The Apostle Paul knew that in 2 Corinthians 4. For if our, if our gospel is veiled... It's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. The problem with this issue is not our message. Right? It is because they are from the world and they speak of the world and the world listens to them. Right? It's, it's attractive to them because it speaks their values and beliefs. I mean, another way to say it would be what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. They heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Right? The reason that Joel Olstein gets such a big crowd is because he says what people want to hear. Right? He gives them a gospel that accords to their belief system rather than confronting it. Right? And, and what we have to recognize is these kinds of things mimic Christianity for people, particularly in our kind of a culture, where actually up until 
most recently, being a Christian was actually a positive status symbol. Right? It used to be, I mean, we've watched politicians do this. Right? One famous one lost his run for the governorship of Arkansas the first time. So then he became a good Baptist so he could win the second time and then carry that Bible all the way to the White House. Hasn't been a whole lot said about it since he left the White House. Because there's a kind of impression pro-Christianity that mimics it because it's socially acceptable. Give a message that fits. Give a, a feeling connected to it. But that's not the work of God. It's not the way in which his people are identified. Verse 6 shows us something of a reminder about, if I could put it this way, apostolic rightness. What's the difference between the you are from God and we are from God? I think Paul, uh, John here is talking about the messengers of God, right? We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. The apostles are the spokespersons for God, and God's people listen to them. It is the word of Christ communicated it to us through the apostles, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. And, and the Spirit of God works in the heart of his people to make them receptive to it. The natural man does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him. That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. But when you have the Spirit of God, you actually have a a receptivity to the Word of God. Your mind has been opened. I quoted uh, 2 Corinthians 4.3, if our gospel is veiled, That's the language. You go just up a few verses and it says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. The unveiled face there is is someone who has had the Spirit do a work of illumination that removes the resistance to the Word of God and makes the heart receptive to it. You did not do that to yourself. If you have become receptive to the word of God, it wasn't the work of your flesh. It was the work of the spirit. Right? Peter's classic example. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, they say you're this prophet, Jeremiah, or whatever. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here's what Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't get that by going to school. You got that because the Father opened up your understanding. It's just like what happened in Acts chapter 16 when Paul starts to preach and it says, And God opened Lydia's heart to receive the message. It's a work of God's grace that removes the resistance, grants repentance and faith. He calls us to himself, right? We accept the apostle's word. I prayed tonight about 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 
Paul knew that they were God's people because when the word of God was preached to them, they received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. They accepted it. And that was the evidence that God had done this work to turn their heart. So John says the authority of the apostolic truth is a test of any kind of work. All right, so, so here's, here's where I just pulled together. All right, if, if there's a real work of God moving, it will make much of Jesus. Right? It will confess about Jesus, who he is. It will actually exalt the word of God. Because the word of God is the only way in which you and I know who Jesus is. The work of the Spirit actually is to glorify Jesus Christ. So, so if the Spirit is at work, he will be exalting Christ through the word. Right? That's what will be happening. And you know what? When Christ is exalted and the Spirit is at work, you know what the Spirit does? He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will actually be moving people against the works of the devil. Chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So a test of a real work of the Spirit of God will be, are the works of the devil being attacked? Is sin being confronted? Is it being confessed? Is repentance happening? Right? Because if whatever's happening leaves people exactly where they were in relationship to sin, then it's not the work of the Spirit. Right? It's just an emotional work. It hasn't led to repentance. It hasn't led to Christ exaltation. It hasn't led to a reordering of life according to the word of God. There are some hopeful signs, right? So I don't want you to hear, I don't want you to hear this is a a sort of a, like a back door way to dismiss it, right? There actually seem to be some genuine signs of of genuine heart to seek God and exalt Jesus Christ and deal with sin. And and I pray that's the case. I pray that that kind of thing would happen here. Right? That we would actually have such a hunger for God that it would suspend our normal pattern of life. That would be awesome. But if we're honest, a lot of us like to box God into 60 to 90 minutes twice on Sunday. So we can get back to what we want to do. And and we need to realize that, that sometimes God decides to take over. And we should be glad if he does. But we should also if he's taking over, realize he will do it the way he said he will do it. He won't do it with heresy. If there's heresy there, that's coming from something else. So push the heresy out, get back to God. Right? Don't dismiss it out of hand, but don't be naive about the devil's attempts to overturn true works of God.
right? We should be cautiously optimistic. We should use the normal means that God has given and pray, if I could put it this way, for abnormal blessing. We should, we should embrace patient, prayerful plotting. And if God chooses to accelerate the work, praise his name. Because he is the Lord of the harvest. It's his work. And we should look to him for what we need. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us light and wisdom and strength and help. And Lord, uh, there's lots of confusion in our day. The answer to confusion is not to just summarily reject everything, but to test things by your word. And uh, at least I pray that some of what's happening uh, would be genuine work of your spirit to transform a generation. I thank you for things that have spilled over to uh, what, what I would think are more solid campuses where your word is consistently proclaimed. And perhaps the sparks that are flying off in various directions will light fires that will be kindled and spread more. Lord, in the past, you've used uh, seasons like this to, to launch out laborers, to, to turn people to Christ. And, and we certainly pray that that would be the outcome here, that there would be a greater love for Jesus, a greater commitment to the Scriptures, a greater pursuit of sanctification and holiness, a greater commitment to the body of Christ in the local assembly, a greater commitment to the mission of Jesus Christ to go to the nations and make disciples. Even things we've prayed about tonight, raising up workers, advancing the work, may that be some of the outcome of what seems to be happening. Lord, help us to have hearts that long to see fresh displays of your power and grace, yet also hearts that are tethered to the scriptures to make certain that we don't uh, follow our imaginations rather than the truth of scripture. Give us wisdom, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.